And I've been actually pretty excited to share the sermon that I have with you today. I was going to share it last week, but Ken stepped in when I when I was in the, the deep throes of COVID. And so I put this one off to this week. You may have heard that the Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu died a couple of weeks back. And he was an important figure in the anti-apartheid movement of South Africa. And so what I want to do is I want to just talk about his legacy this morning. And I want to do it for a couple of reasons. One, just to honor him and his life's work. Um, but I want to do it also because I think that the kind of faith that he practiced is what we're talking about when we talk about what a reconstructed faith looks like. And you know, we've been doing this like sort of slow walk through reconstruction over the last couple of months, and we'll continue to do that. But I thought it might actually be helpful to have something that's just a little bit more concrete, more summarizing that we could hold on to. So actually, first to start off, I want to share a sweet picture with you of um, Desmond Tutu, if you aren't as familiar with him. So but he's the man on the right, and the man on the left is the Dalai Lama. And there, I think they, they were doing some dancing. They just always had this long friendship where they, they very much enjoyed each other and just, they would just giggle. Um, <laughs> they would just like get together and have so much joy overflowing. So that's who we're talking about, Archbishop Tutu. And being non-Western, he didn't carry the same kind of, you know, sort of theological and philosophical baggages that many of us tend to carry. And he was also an Anglican. And so while he had some, you know, kind of colonial threads that he had to untangle from his own faith, he didn't have the like scripture is literal knot that he had to get rid of because that's, that's not as much a part of the Anglican Episcopal tradition. And so I think he's a little less encumbered by some of the things that have infected white American Christianity in particular, and so freer to embody an expression of faith that we can learn from. So, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, when I first started doing pastoral work, I was deliberately looking around the faith landscape, trying to find models. And Desmond Tutu is one of the people that I landed on as somebody that I could embrace. And at that time, I was, I was pretty disillusioned, actually, with a lot of the pastoring that I saw, um, maybe even especially in my denomination, with Ken being a very notable exception. And it was like, I knew I needed some heroes. Like we only had what, two female senior pastors, I think at all in that denomination. And I just needed some people to show me how to care for a faith community in a way that I felt like held integrity for me, right? And so I was thinking like, who do I wanna look like as a pastor? And who would I want the people that I lead to aspire to look like? And I've since found a lot more heroes, but at that time, Desmond Tutu was one of the few who really popped out and is probably the number one faith leader that I've admired in my life. And so I read a couple of books of his around that time. Um, I'll put those into the, into the chat here. We caught. Sorry about that. Um, the first one, um, I actually read after the second one, but the first one was The Rainbow People of God and that was written during apartheid in the 1980s. And so for those of you who might be maybe a little bit younger, you might not know quite as much about apartheid. It was a legal system in South Africa that oppressed black South Africans and favored the white colonial settlers in a nutshell. And so the book, The Rainbow People of God was, it was like a how-to book for creating peaceful revolution 
And I like to use the phrase, it spits prophetic fire, right? It spits prophetic fire at the injustices that were being done. And what it basically is, is a collection of different sermons and speeches and letters to the government that Desmond Tutu wrote and gave, and they bore witness to the suffering of the Black South Africans and called for changes. And we know that peaceful revolutions even are not passive, right? Peaceful revolutions can be the strategic dismantling of power, which is what he did. And Desmond Tutu really showed some real tools for how to do that. And then he wrote No Future Without Forgiveness, um, which I actually think I read in the early 2000s. Um, I read that a little bit before. And he wrote that a few years after apartheid had ended. And he wrote it because he knew that his country had really deep racial divides, that if they didn't have some kind of spiritual leadership guiding people on how to do the hard work of reconciliation, that they could have easily devolved into just more widespread violence. And it's certainly not an apples to apples comparison between South Africa and here. We have some very different narratives, um, but there are some similarities, I think, in some of the racial dynamics where we could actually learn quite a lot from what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did. And that was a commission that Archbishop Tutu set up to help his nation deal with the harm that was done under apartheid. And I think what most impressed me as I read his work, um, I think because of the, the particular stream of Christianity I grew up in, I felt like justice wasn't a real strong current of that. And for me, it felt like there was a practicality to Christianity um, that could be found in the in the face of these like widespread systemic injustices, right? That Christianity had something valuable to offer in these national and sort of global conversations. Another thing that when I think about Desmond Tutu that I was drawn to from the get-go was I've always felt like he's held these two ends, um, these kind of two polar ends in tandem of idealism and realism. Right, idealism and realism. And it's something I feel like I relate to on a deep level because I, for whatever reason, I'm personally just kind of wired to be really idealistic. And I think that idealism is pretty intrinsic to faith, right? That as Christians, we are like, our hope is to always hope for a future that is filled with more justice and more love and more connection and more peace. Right? We are always working for and hoping for this good realm of God to become more realized in this life, right? That's, that's part of the essence of our spirituality. But we also recognize that there are some injustices that run so deep and cause such harm to vulnerable people that true reconciliation might not always be found in this life, but it's hoped for in the fullness of time. And the violence in this world, um, Desmond Tutu, was teaching me, it means that we can't always just say things like, okay, well, apartheid's over, so now we move on, right? Or slavery's over, or Jim Crow's over, so let's just get on with it. But that we have to name the harms that have been done, right? And we have to name the brutality and the violence and the ongoing human cost. And then we have to make amends on the victim's terms, not the oppressor's terms. And that that doesn't always happen. And even when it does, Tutu talked about how forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. 
you know, that forgiveness is required of us, even if it's a lifetime process, right? For most people, it's not some instant thing. It's, it's a process that's ongoing. And reconciliation might not always be safe for the victim, even if it's an ideal goal, right? And I think that forgiveness and reconciliation are the hardest things we do um, as Christians and that we need some of the deepest wisdom on. And so I leaned really heavily into a book that he wrote with his daughter Mfo on these topics. Um, it's a part of Solus Jesus, where I spent significant time on forgiveness and reconciliation. And I learned from him because he had hard-won wisdom from decades of helping people find healing and doing that hard work. So when I heard about his death, what I did is I got on my computer um, that same day and I, I quickly just kind of jotted down a list of all the things that I admired about his faith. And I kind of did it to organize myself um, but as I looked at it this week, I thought, you know, this might just be helpful for us to look at as a congregation, because I think it sums up the kind of faith that we're trying to practice. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through these 12 things that I jotted down, actually in the order that I wrote them, and even with some of the, the jumbled way that I said them, and I'll paste them into the chat as we go so we can see it. So here's the first one that I wrote. Number one that he had wisdom on forgiveness and reconciliation, which I just went through a little bit. Um, and we actually did a four-part sermon series on his book, The Book of Forgiving, that he wrote with Umfo, his daughter, a few years back. He was one that we turned to pretty soon after um, sort of the church split that we came from because we needed some help and some tools on healing and forgiving. The second thing that I wrote was ecumenical interfaith. What does that mean? Ecumenical means more like that you're working together with other Christians interfaith. I was just recognizing how good he was at developing real interfaith relationships. And while Archbishop Tutu, he was he was Christian through and through, right? He, he was a big fan of Jesus, but he also had the humility to recognize that he could be wrong. And he had the humbleness to know that God is manifest outside of Christian boxes and that we can learn from other faith traditions, right? You saw that picture of him dancing with the Dalai Lama. I remember years ago, just, I think I was telling you the TV footage of him just kind of giggling <laughs> with the Dalai Lama. And they just loved each other so much. And they had this decades long friendship where they really learned from each other. Actually, I forgot to bring it over here this morning. It's in my living room, but the last book that Desmond Tutu wrote was with the Dalai Lama. It's called the Book of Joy. And I bought it last year because I was thinking, gosh, what could help us in the pandemic? What would help me pastor during the pandemic? And I, well, let's see what Desmond Tutu has. Um, so that's one that we haven't like preached through, but I've certainly been influenced by it as we've done Zoom Church. You know, when I lived in China, I, I was living on the Tibetan Plateau and at that time was when I started to really look to Desmond Tutu's interaction with the Dalai Lama for guidance on how to do this interfaith relationships with my Buddhist friends. Um, I think he would recognize that, you know, not all religions are the same, right? There are differences in, relig in religions, but that we don't have to be fearful of those differences. That was what was really helpful to me and that we don't have to be fearful of being challenged by other people, um, of laying down maybe some of our own sacred cows, so to speak. We don't have to be fearful about talking about our lens with open heartedness, but we just have to remember 
and that he reminds us that love doesn't demand that we colonize another, right? So we don't approach relationships with others with the expectation that they will like give up their traditions or with some kind of agenda, but we approach relationships just filled with love, bearing witness to our own experience. And I feel like Desmond Tutu was such a model of that. And in fact, I mean, I really can't think of any other major Christian faith leader who is quite on that on that level who is living. I think we're I think that's a real loss that we will experience on a global level. Um, the third thing that I wrote down was just simply joy. Because uh, you can see he was just a man filled with joy, even though he was a man who had actually experienced a lot of tremendous personal suffering. And if you ever read him or listen to him, you know, he never downplays that suffering, right? He doesn't like gloss over it like, oh, we just have to put on a smile. But it's more like he found this wellspring of joy in the midst of all that suffering. And it was what he was known for. And I thought, I want to be known for joy. I think our spirituality um, should foster that to some extent. Not that you have to be some kind of happy, clappy Christian, but I think joy is something that we can find. The fourth thing I wrote down was that he was spirit led and he was a mystic, right? He was influenced by um, some of the Pentecostal tradition that we've been influenced by. Oh, I was trying to copy a um, just a second, a quote of his, but it was too long. So let me do it in two parts and then we can go through it here. Just because I thought it really just summed up who he was pastorally in this way. So he said, if we're to be true partners with God, we must learn to see with the eyes of God. That is to see with the eyes of the heart and not just the eyes of the head. And the eyes of the heart are not concerned with appearances, but with essences. And as you begin to see with the eyes of God, you start to realize that people's anger and hatred and cruelty come from their own pain and suffering. And as we begin to see their words and behavior as simply the acting out of their suffering, we can have compassion for them. We no longer need to feel attacked by them and we can begin to see the light of God shining in them. We've not always learned to just be receptive, to be in the presence of God, quiet, available, letting God be God who wants us to be God. We're shocked actually when we hear that God want, what God wants for us is to be God-like, for us to become more and more like God, not by doing anything, but by letting God be God in and through us, each one of us is meant to have that space inside where we can hear God's voice. God is available to all of us. God says, be still and know that I am God. Isn't that just incredibly beautiful? Um, and the heart of, I think, what really drove him was that space and connection with the divine that he understood to be love through and through. The fifth thing I wrote was he was an LGBTQ plus advocate. His daughter, the Reverend Mfo Tutu, is a lesbian, married to her partner, and her father championed her and all queer people. And he didn't make as much headway as he would have liked in the African Anglican Church, but he used his voice and his power to advocate strongly for affirmation in the church, as well as for civil rights in South Africa. And for that, I will always love him. The sixth one, I wrote, and maybe this is more of like a note to myself, that he had a Girardian understanding of scapegoating 
in relation to the cross and resurrection. And I am not going to go into details on <clears throat> Rene Girard's scapegoating theory. You know, Ken and I have written and talked about it pretty extensively. And I actually didn't know until more recently that he was also influenced by Girard, but it was, oh, go ahead, Emily, Ken says. <laughs> Ken, that'll be an hour long sermon. <laughs> um, we should probably do a brush up for people who are newer on it. It just wasn't a surprise. Right. Gerard helped me understand. Um, I felt like why Jesus died, the meaning of the resurrection in a way that felt practical and not just about like my personal individual sins. Um, and I was actually in a conference in Nashville. It was two and a half years ago. I'm just going to put the name of the conference. So for those of you who have maybe known me well, will know that this is like I saw the name of this conference and I was like, I have to go, even though I ended up having a not great experience as a queer person there. But the conference was still kind of cool. Beloved community, which is a Martin Luther King Jr. phrase essentially for you know the community of God as the way from scapegoating to Ubuntu. And so Desmond Tutu's other daughter, the Reverend Naomi Tutu, who's an Episcopal priest here in the US, she was one of the panelists there. And so she was there to talk about Girard and scapegoating and that connection to Ubuntu. And I was like, of course, we are on the same wavelength with a lot of our theology, I think. And you might be like, what is Ubuntu? Which, as I was jotting down, I was like, well, of course, then Ubuntu is one of the things that I loved about him. And what Ubuntu is, is an African philosophy. I think it's Zulu. And it boils down to, I am because you are. I am because you are. And it recognizes that all people are interwoven and that my actions affect you and yours affect me. And some people have compared that idea to Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community, um, hence panels like the one I was at. But understanding the world through the lens of Ubuntu, I think allowed Archbishop Tutu um, to name that the white people in South Africa who were oppressing others that they were also dehumanizing themselves, right? That they needed pastoring and spiritual healing as well. This idea that harm done to you is harm done to me. And as I was writing it, it made me think of Matthew 25. I think Jesus said something very similar. I'll put that in the, in the chat. When Jesus was teaching, he was um, telling this story and he says that, talking about God, then the righteous will answer, God essentially. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger um when did when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then God will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me, right? That is, that is a very similar or coming from a very similar philosophy to Ubuntu. And I will fully confess it is Ubuntu is like far more comprehensive than anything that I fully understand. And I feel like I'm still learning. It's so anathema to me as 
sort of a Western post-enlightenment person who's learned about individualism my whole life. Um, it's something that we are slowly unpacking, but I do think you see it come through in our church vision statement, right? We talked about from the beginning, we want to cultivate connection to God, ourselves, each other, and the world around us. And that springs out of this philosophy we're trying to learn from that all, everything is connected, all of creation. And I loved that about Desmond Tutu and continue to learn from him in that. The eighth thing I wrote down was um, he called out the dark side of capitalism and the ecological disaster that's unfolding. And we haven't seen a lot of really strong religious voices there, although we're seeing a little bit more from, um, from the Roman Catholics now. Right at that conference I was at in Nashville, the one that Reverend Naomi was at, um, it was a small conference, right? So it was a, a group of maybe 60 or so pastors and theologians. And I alluded to that I'd been feeling pretty frustrated actually at that conference at the group's lack of ability to name that queer people are one of the most prominent of the church's scapegoats, right? So here we've got a bunch of, you know, pastors and theologians who consider themselves progressive talking about scapegoating and unable to sort of name that. And who spoke up was Reverend Naomi. But she also looked out at this group and she said something it's been to, I can't remember exactly, but it was something to the effect of, you guys, if you really understood Ubuntu, it would reorder how you think about everything from economics to the way we interact with the rest of the natural world. She's like, you do not understand. Like, this was one of those like moments where you're like getting a witness in your spirit. I remember kind of just raising my hand. She's like, you don't understand. We are decimating the resources of the developing world and we're doing it in the name of producing more stuff for people to buy and Africa and Africans are suffering for this. Right. She's not her dad, but he also spoke that way. He wrote a really powerful essay in The Guardian in 2014, just calling on people of faith to boycott the fossil fuel industry. Um, he wrote and he, he grounded it in our faith, in our shared faith said it's a responsibility that begins with God commanding the first human inhabitants of the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it, to keep it, not to abuse it, not to destroy it. It makes no sense to invest in companies that undermine our future. To serve as custodians of creation is not an empty title. It requires that we act and with all the urgency that this dire situation demands. I liked that he, he just never, he holds no bones, holds no bones about the things that he called out um, to hold us to some sort of moral compass. Um, this one's number nine. I forgot the number that he read scripture through the lens of love your neighbor. But, you know, he was Anglican and non-Western. He wasn't as shaped by Sola Scriptura. And I don't need to go into that in detail, but um, he just didn't have that hang up of reading scripture literally. And so he read scripture with an ethic of love and talked about that as being the highest ethic through which we practice our faith. And that has always resonated with me. The 10th thing was that he just lived simply. Oops, it did not. Uh, I'll just type it. Lived simply. I knew that he actually didn't make a lot of money, even as an archbishop where he was and that he had had pretty humble abode. But I actually learned something when I, I read um, was reading one of the obituaries about him that when he won the Nobel Peace Prize in the 80s, he actually gave away most of the prize money. And I thought, of course, he did. Um, and he gave it away to funds that helped 
um, black South Africans who had been oppressed by apartheid. And then even for his funeral, he just said he wanted it simple, right? Cheap coffin, send all the money to, um, to be given away to the poor. Right? He was just known for simplicity and generosity. Number 11, let's see if I can actually copy and paste it right this time, that he used his power to advocate for those with less power at cost to himself and spent his whole career doing that. Right? He protested, he organized, he led marches, he wrote letters. He took a lot of heat in the church for his advocacy for queer people and his insistence that God is not homophobic. He actually has a pretty controversial quote where he's like, if there aren't queer people in heaven, I'd rather go to the other place. <laughs> um, he just fought systemic injustice and white supremacy and it landed him in jail more than one time, right? He was, he was a fierce person, <clears throat> joyful, but fierce. And then last but not least, he just kept insisting that God loves everyone. He said, faith boils down to that. It's God loves you. God loves me. God loves our enemies. And if we understand that we are so loved by such a God, then in turn, we can learn to love. Right. And that that, that was the essence. And so I know I know that was kind of a big list. And I know that we could do a sermon series on each one of these. We do. I mean, this is kind of the ethics that in part shape who we are. But when I just looked at that list, I thought, you know, this is this is a pretty good articulation of what we're for as Christians in a time when I think it's sometimes easier to say what we're against. Right? What am I for? I am for having great interfaith relationships. I am for knowing the wisdom of the hard work of doing forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm for joy. I'm for connection with God. I'm for LGBTQ plus inclusion. I am for an understanding of the scapegoat that gives us wisdom on the cross and resurrection. I am for Ubuntu and connection with all of creation. I am for caretaking for the earth and calling out the people who have been doing the oppressing, <clears throat> like exploiting um, workers in the developing world. I'm for reading the scripture with an ethic of love. I'm for living simply and generously. I'm for using our power to help those with less power, even at cost to myself. And I am for telling everyone that God loves you, no matter who you are or what, you, what you've done, where you've come from, God loves you, right? That's who we are as people with a reconstructed faith, shedding off the things that have sort of clouded that witness. And so when I look at, at Desmond Tutu, I'm like, the witness that he left in the world is similar to the witness that I hope that I leave in the world and that I hope that we as a congregation of faith also leave in this world. So with that, we'll do just a brief meditation. I know I spoke longer than I usually do. And so we'll just, we'll just take maybe one minute here. Um, in part just to remind ourselves of having that connection with God is important. And so I'm going to put a verse into the chat, 1 John 4.16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so maybe let's just take a minute of silence. I'll let you know when it's up. Just meditate on whatever part of that verse is resonant for you. God is love. Go ahead.
God, we thank you for your love. And we thank you for the saints who have come before us who bear witness to what it means to follow you in a way that leads to freedom and liberation, to an understanding that we are fully loved, or maybe be filled with your spirit and with the joy that comes with that as we go forward in our week. Amen.